Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we are taking a deep dive into a triple murder that took place at the Star of Rock State Park way back in 1960, where three women were brutally bludgeoned to death. My client, Chester Weaker, was a 21-year-old dishwasher at the Star of Rock Lodge who was arrested for the brutal crimes, convicted, and served over 60 years in prison. We've been making the case in this podcast that Chester Weger was wrongfully convicted of these horrendous murders. Today, we have a startling new development to present to you that casts serious doubt on the Chester Weger confession story. We have a lot to talk about. Let's begin. In the months following the murders at Starve Rock, countless reports, memos, and other assorted documents were created. Some were preserved. Some were filed away and are still waiting to be discovered in rusty filing cabinets or disintegrating evidence boxes somewhere. Others have simply been lost or destroyed, leaving us with only part of the story. But of the thousands of pages that still remain, there are clues to what really happened in 1960. Sometimes sifting through these clues for something new, something relevant, something that can actually explain the truth of what happened, can feel like searching for the proverbial needle in a haystack. But once in a case, sometimes once in a lifetime, you find that needle in a haystack. Shockingly, just a week ago, we found it. Our needle in a haystack, our smoking gun, the Zelensek memo. Whitney, I have never been more excited to record an episode of this podcast than I am right now. Well, we are feeling absolutely the same emotions. I, I, I cannot wait to dive into today's episode. We have a big break in the case to announce this episode. We've been making the case why Chester Weger had nothing to do with the Star of Rock murders. And that raises the question, if not Chester Weger, then who? Today, on this episode, we're going to answer that question. All right, I've used the word bombshell many times on this podcast. I'm going to use a different word for this episode. Smoking gun. A smoking gun document. Let me explain. Last Saturday, which would have been March 26, I was in my office all day just reviewing piles of documents. Because like I've said before, a lot of times when you review a document on day one, it doesn't have much meaning, but when you review it like a year later and you've got a whole nother context and so much more knowledge, it, it can take on a whole new meaning. So I came across a document last Saturday that I don't recall seeing before. All right, everybody out there, get comfortable, <laughs> listen closely. What I'm about to describe is critically important. It is a two-page report. It's a police report dated April 20th, 1960, regarding a police interview with a telephone operator named Miss Lois Zelensek, Z-E-L-E-N-S-E-K. And let me explain in a little context. Back in the day, 
if you were making a phone call from a payphone, you would put in a coin and you would get a certain amount of time to talk based on how much change you put in the, in the machine, in the, in the phone. So an operator would come on the line to tell you, you know, your time was up or you need to put in more money. So operators were involved back in 1960 if you were making a call from a payphone. Okay, so this two-page report is reporting on a conversation the telephone operator Lois Zelensek overheard between two men on March 21st, 1960, which is just days after the women's bodies were found in Starve Rock State Park. All right, Whitney, do you remember me on Saturday night calling you up and telling you about this document? (laughs) Yeah, I think that is the most excited that I've ever heard you uh, in in the years that I've known you. And I was floored when you told me about it because you and I have both poured over thousands of pages. And it's not an exaggeration to say there are thousands of pages of documents related to this case. And the chances of you finding this, it's just, it's a needle in a haystack that you found it, but I am so glad that you did. I was, when I called you, I was like shaking. I couldn't even sleep that (laughs) night. My mind was racing. So this is, it was a document that I had gotten, you know, along with hundreds and hundreds of other pages through FOIA requests. And like I said, it is, it's titled Subject, Mrs. Lois Zelensek, date April 20th, 1960, interviewed by Trooper Murphy and Trooper Bales. Can you read the first paragraph of the report about what Lois Zelenskek reports to the police? Sure. Somewhere between 6 and 8 p.m. on March 21st, 1960, when I opened my monitor key to notify the parties that their time was up, I heard the Aurora party say that they sure have a big write-up on the murder case in tonight's paper. You know the kid has blood-stained overalls in the trunk of the car, and he's getting a little anxious to know what he's going to do with them. He's afraid he'll get caught. LaSalle party says, well, tell him to get rid of them. Burn them. End of conversation relating to the murder. Oh, my God. Like, wow. (laughs) I have the same reaction now a week later uh, as I did last weekend. This is incredible. So let me explain. Aurora party, Aurora is a town about halfway between Starve Rock State Park and Chicago. LaSalle is a town right next to Starve Rock State Park. So let me pause here and make several points. What does this mean? Okay, I've got several points I want to make. Point one, this is a telephone call that the operator overhears that is placed on March 21st, just five days after the women's bodies are discovered in St. Louis Canyon. Point number two, the Aurora Party starts the conversation by stating, quote, They sure have a big write-up on the murder case in tonight's paper, end of quote. That is clearly referring to the Starve Rock murders. Point three, the Aurora party goes on to state, quote, you know, the kid has blood-stained overalls in the trunk of the car, and he's getting a little anxious to know what he's going to do with them. He's afraid he'll get caught. So there's a person who has bloodstained overalls in the trunk of a car, who's afraid of getting caught for the Starve Rock murders. That person is one of the killers of the three women. Point four. The two men on this call 
know the identity of this killer who has bloodstained overalls in the trunk of a car. Point five, there are at least three people involved in some way in these murders. One, the killer with the bloody overalls in the trunk of the car. Two, the Aurora man who places the telephone call. And three, the LaSalle man who receives the call. Point six, the operator, Lois Zelensek, also states, quote, gave impression that the Aurora party was reporting to the boss and the LaSalle party seemed to be the dominant one of the two. That is consistent with the Aurora party asking the LaSalle party for advice, what to do about the bloody clothes in the trunk of the car. And it's interesting, she notes in the interview that the parties, these guys were not nervous or worried at all. And it reminds me, you know, I'm watching right now, my wife and I, we've been binging different shows during COVID. We've watched West Wing, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones. We're doing Sopranos now. <laughs> and it reminds me of like, like Sopranos in that you've got two guys on the phone, very casually, not nervous or worried, just saying, talking about bloody overalls, guys worried about getting caught. Oh, burn them. Just just like casual conversation. It's actually kind of chillingly casual. Right. You know, it's, I'm waiting for them, like like based on on what Lois Zelensky says, I'm waiting for them to dis- discuss the weather next. Like it's yeah. just it's so casual. Right. There's, there's no like, there's no uh, excitement or what are you talking about, bloody overalls? Or what's going on? Like yeah, yeah. completely casual. And then they go on to talk about other things. Yeah, you know, they exactly. go on to talk about other things that she notes in the memo. Point number seven The LaSalle party tells the Aurora party, tell him to get rid of them, burn them. So the two men on this call are hatching a plan to destroy this incriminating evidence and protect the identity of this killer who has the bloodstained overalls in the trunk of a car. And point number eight, this phone call is consistent with what I have been saying all along that makes the most sense a premeditated plan carried out by several people. I mean, wow, this Lois Zelensky interview is a bombshell and this report is a smoking gun. Well, it's I don't understand. I'm I'm like, I'm stumbling over my words because I don't understand how we haven't stumbled across more information about this other than no one wanted it to be found. Yeah. And it's just luck that you found this one document. You know, it was like the law of attraction. My fingers somehow got drawn to this page. I just can't explain it. Let me now pivot to discuss the telephone operator, Ms. Lois Zelensek. She's not some drunk person sitting in a bar who claims to have overheard a conversation. This is her job. She's a telephone operator, okay? Yeah. Uh, I pulled up her obituary. Unfortunately, she passed in 2015. I'm going to post it on the website. What a sweet-looking, nice lady. Her interview is very detailed. She describes what she hears. She describes the voices of the two men, other details. I mean, it's a it's a two-page report. And she's extremely troubled by what she hears. She is very conflicted about what to do. I want you to read the part about the memo where she's talking about how troubled she was 
She states, I was uncertain what to do after hearing the conversation. The rules of communication prohibit revealing anything overheard. Yet I felt very strongly that I had just overheard something extremely important. So I love that her first concern is that she might violate the the ethical code of telephone operators. Right. right? That is her first concern is that she might be in an ethics violation. Right. I mean, I thought that I thought that just gave it such a sense of credibility. It just kind of underscored how important the information was that she heard. And then go ahead and read the part where she talks about, you know, the importance of what she overheard. Yeah. So she goes on to say, I feel this is definitely related to the murders. I have lost much sleep trying to determine the right thing to do. I mean, isn't that incredible? This poor woman, (sighs) um, you know, she's my hero. She is the hero. She is the one who broke the case, in my opinion, by coming forward. She's the one who deserves the reward money, not Dummett and Harlan Warren. So what she does is, this memo describes it. I'm going to post this on the website, andyhillpodcast.com. I urge you to read it. I beg you to read it. Read this memo, please. She winds up reporting the information to the police. And my point here is, she is an extremely credible witness. There is no reason to doubt anything she said. In fact, the police have every reason to take every single word of what she said as the truth. Okay, so let's keep going. All we know at this point, we've got two guys, an Aurora party and a LaSalle party. Who are these guys? That's the question. So this is clearly a huge break in the case when she comes forward. So the question becomes, who are these two men talking on the phone? And who's the killer with the bloody overalls? This April 20th, 1960 report mentions that efforts are underway to trace the phone call, meaning to find out who placed the call and who received the call. So let's talk about what happened next. I checked my file. I don't have any other documents on this. This is it, okay? Have you seen anything else on this? No, until you showed this to me, I've not seen any record anywhere relating to this other than one newspaper article. I didn't connect to it until you drew the lines for me, which I think you're going to explain now. Yeah. Well, I had seen a newspaper article when I was looking for things on Bill Jansen, and it had talked about a guy who was overheard talking about bloody overalls. Yeah. And they said, oh, he denies the conversation. Then it quoted Assistant State's Attorney Craig Armstrong saying, it was a thousand to one shot that it was related to the case. Thousand to one shot? Are you kidding me? If you read this memo, <laughs> I mean, you should have gotten in your car and immediately driven to Lois Zelensky's house to interview her. It was so important. Yeah. So because I had no other documents, I went to my trusty resource, newspapers.com, which has been amazing, and I did a search of the topic, bloody overalls. Do you want to hear what I found out? I want to hear what you found out so badly. Tell me. All right. I didn't find out anything being reported about bloody overalls until August 31st, 1960, which is almost four months after the interview of Lois Zelensky. I found that odd. It took four months to report anything about this. And I found a Chicago Tribune, August 31st, 1960 article. And the two men have now been identified. They're two brothers. Let me read you 
a part of this Chicago Tribune article. Two brothers, one a tavern keeper in Aurora and the other a used car dealer in Peru, were questioned Tuesday by LaSalle County authorities and state police in connection with the murder of the three Riverside matrons last March 14th in Starve Rock State Park. The brothers, Glenn A. Palmatier, that's spelled P-A-L-M-A-T-I-E-R, it says 40, but we've since determined his age is 49, of Aurora, Mm -hmm. and William Palmatier, 55, of Peru, which is a few miles from the park where the women were slain. Telephone company records in Aurora show that a call was made at 9 p.m. March 21st from a pay telephone in Glenn's Tavern to the home of William Palmatier. Wow! This is huge! We now know the identity of the two men on this March 21st phone call. I mean, we never had any names before. And talk about... Again, casual, casual conversation. I'm going to make a call from my place of business to my brother's house to discuss the murder. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I mean, I'm going to be that casual about it. No big deal, right? And let me pause and note something here I think is significant. In the report of Ms. Zelensek's interview, she says, quote, I gathered the impression that the LaSalle party was an auto dealer. They were talking about a business deal pertaining to cars. So, all right, so it turns out that the person who received the phone call, William Palmatier, is an auto dealer. It totally corroborates what the operator, Mrs. Zelensek, reported she heard. I thought that was huge. Yeah. But here's the most important point. This phone call between these two brothers, Glenn Palmatier of Aurora and William Palmatier of Peru, disproves the notion that Chester Weger killed these three women on his break. All right, first, this is an extremely credible, completely different version of events involving multiple people. Nothing like the Chester Weger phony baloney confession story. Two, Chester Weger doesn't own a car. Three, Chester Weger was wearing a buckskin jacket, not overalls. And four, Chester Weger has no connection to these brothers. This phone call, in my mind, puts a nail in the coffin to the story that Chester Weger had anything to do with this crime. I'm going to talk about that more. Let's continue. All right, so what happens now? We've identified the two brothers. You know, four months later, I don't know why it took four months, but the police have now traced the call from Glenn Palmatier's tavern to his brother William's house in Peru, which, by the way, Peru is right next to La Salle. They're adjoining towns. All right, so now what happens? The August 31st, 1960 Chicago Tribune article says the brothers what? Guess what? Do you think they admitted their role in the murders? Oh, no, no, no. It, I'm sure it never happened that Mrs. Zelensky must just have been making this up. The bro- <laughs> I mean, this is the quote. The brothers denied they had any such conversation And I like this part. Although Glenn said that he had called his brother several times in March and may have called him on March 21st, William, however, was positive about not having talked with his brother on the phone on that date. All right, let me pause. 
they traced the call to his house. Yeah. Miss Zelensek says she hears the guy talking about she thinks he's an auto dealer, which he is. I mean, are you kidding me? These guys just deny the phone call? I mean, is that any shocker? What did the police think these guys were going to say? Oh, come on and arrest us. You know, take us in. Uh, we're part of this whole plot to murder these three ladies. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and let me make this point, too. These brothers are not claiming that Ms. Zelensek misinterpreted what they said about the bloody overalls. They're not saying, oh, well, she heard that wrong. We're talking about something else. The brothers are denying that such a conversation took place. I mean, do they not know the call was traced? Did the police not tell them this? Or they didn't care because obviously it didn't catch up with them. I mean, what lies? I mean, would you believe one word from these two brothers when they're denying this? Oh my God, I could scream. All right, so let's continue. What happens next? Do the two brothers get arrested? No. The August 31st, 1960 Chicago Tribune article states, after both offered to take lie tests, Harlan Warren, LaSalle County State's attorney, arranged for Glenn to undergo one next week in the office of John Reed and Associates. What? A, a lie detector test? What good is that? I mean, what? Does Harlan Warren think Miss Selenskek is making this all up? Are you kidding me? We don't need a lie detector test, Mr. Warren. We need a full court press of an investigation. Go get the brothers' phone records. See everyone that they've spoken to in the past several weeks. Interview everybody that knows them. Take hair samples from them. Get a search warrant. Go to their house, their business. Investigate. I mean, you're going to have them take a lie detector test? Oh, my God. I mean, what a... What a ridiculous response. Can you believe that? Well, it would have to uh, require, right, that Lois Zelensky is a criminal mastermind, that she just randomly decided to select two brothers that fit this scenario, right? And then she just posits this story that incriminates these two brothers that are just talking about the weather one day on the phone. I mean, it, it's, it's Unbelievable. not plausible. It's Unbelievable. not plausible. And, you know, let me take a little, make a little footnote here. This is something I just noted again. Why is Harlan Warren the one arranging this? He's the state's attorney, okay? State's attorneys prosecute cases. They're not the police. They don't investigate cases. So like here in Chicago, our state's attorney is Kim Fox. If there's a murder today in Chicago, Kim Fox isn't driving out to the murder scene and interviewing witnesses and scheduling polygraphs and investigating the case. The Chicago Police Department is doing that. And then when they've got people that they've arrested, they bring it to the state's attorney's office to seek approval of charges. Why is Harlan Warren involved in any of this as opposed to the police? That raises a red flag to me. So now he's going to arrange a polygraph. Oh, great. So let's continue with the chronology. I found one more article on this topic. I only found a handful. I found a few on August 31st. And then the last one I found is dated September 8th, 1960. And it's titled, Test clears Aurora man in triple murder. And uh, oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to read you this. Glenn A. Palmatier of Aurora, former secretary to Mayor Paul Egan, has been cleared by a lie test of implication in a telephone conversation believed linked with the murders of three Riverside matrons, LaSalle County investigators said Wednesday. 
The lie test in the offices of John Reed and Associates was arranged by Harlan Warren, LaSalle County State's Attorney. William Palmateer, who also has denied knowledge of the telephone call, has agreed to submit to a lie test. No date has been set for the test. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Glenn Palmateer is cleared because he passed a polygraph test? Oh my God. I mean, Chester Weger passed six. They didn't clear him. They took him to Chicago again. I mean, can you believe they cleared this guy because he passed a polygraph? And I've seen nothing reporting that William Palmateer took a polygraph, let alone passed one. Case closed. That's all I've seen. And isn't it interesting? Harlan Warren closes the case against Glenn Palmateer on September 8th. Now they need to point the finger at someone else. And guess what? Just a few weeks later, in late September, Harlan Warren and Bill Dummett are dragging Chester Weger to Chicago to John Reed and Associates for a polygraph. And now all the focus turns to Chester Weger because they need a fall guy. So it's unbelievable to me that they would clear this guy based on a polygraph. So what now? Miss Zelensic was lying about all this? She made it up? I mean, it is so outrageous. They traced the call to William's house. I mean, there is no polygraph issue at all. I mean, it just, it's, it, this is, to me, clearly an attempt to cover this up and make it go away. It was a convenient way to say, hey, you know what? Let's have these guys take a polygraph and then they'll pass the polygraph and we can put this all to bed. That is the only explanation I can come up with why you would give these guys a polygraph. It is not a legitimate investigative tool. There is no evidence they were trying to get to the bottom of this. This looks to me to be a massive cover-up. Yeah, I don't I don't know how else you view this because everyone else who's even remotely suspected as being involved with this crime gets questioned and trailed and polygraphed and these two guys basically just go, "Oh no, we don't know what you're talking about." And then they just and then they, poof, it just goes away for them. You've got to read the memo. I mean, I urge everybody out there, read this two-page memo of the interview of the operator, Lois Lensek. When you read that, you can't believe you would not believe every word she said and that you would believe one word from these two brothers who deny the conversation. That is just an absolute lie. I mean, oh my God, I just want to scream. And let me talk about another twist. This is even adds more intrigue. All right, let's go back to that April 20th memo. The first thing Lois Zelensek says, she hears the Aurora party, which is Glenn Palmateer, say to his brother is, quote, they sure have a big write-up on the murder case in tonight's paper. Okay, that would have been the March 21st, 1960 paper. That's the date she's saying this conversation took place. So I went back to take a look at what the March 21st, 1960 newspaper said. And I came across the Chicago Tribune, which I believe would have been the paper Glenn Palmateer would have read since he was in Aurora. So the headline, there's a huge headline, and I'm going to post this on the website, all capital letters, seek two slain suspects. And it talks in here about an informant whose name was being withheld, who said he saw the women... This is on Monday, March 14th. 
saw the women talking to a young man who stood beside a 1958 Chevrolet sedan, described that person as 25 years old, 5 feet 8, 165 pounds, reddish brown hair, wearing a yellow-gray fingertip coat and blue trousers. And they said the informant, are you ready, is an auto dealer from LaSalle. Who does that sound like to you? (laughs) Well, I think there's only a pool of about three people it could possibly be. So Occam's razor, I think we've arrived back at William Palmatier. Oh, my gosh. So, So how bizarre is that? What is going on here? So here's my take on this. So let me pause. So what, what's happening is this auto dealer in LaSalle, who's got to be William Palmatier, is claiming he saw the ladies on the side of the road in the afternoon talking to some guy by a car with another guy inside the car. Okay. Option one, William Palmatier made all this up to throw the police off the scent of the real killers, people that William Palmatier was involved with. The other option, option two, is William Palmatier did see the three women talking to someone by a car. Perhaps that person or persons did give the ladies a ride from the lodge to this entrance to St. Louis Canyon. But William Palmatier knew, if he actually saw that, he knew that the person he saw by the women had nothing to do with the crime and more importantly, that would mean that William Palmatier was near the entrance to St. Louis Canyon shortly before the women were murdered. Why would he be there unless he was involved in some way? I mean, can you believe this? Well, no, and either way, this is bad for him because either way, whatever the information he is it's giving to the police, whether it's factual or not, He's still omitting from telling the police, oh, by the way, I am aware there is a kid with bloody overalls in his car. Yeah. Who's worried about getting caught for the crime. He doesn't share that information. Yeah, let's be clear. They're never turning that person in. If the killer's got the bloody overalls, they're protecting that person. They're not turning him in. So look where we're at now. We've traced the call to these two brothers. They have denied it, and the whole thing goes away. So now I have to ask the question, who are these Palmatier brothers? In order to make any sense out of all this, we need to take a close look at Glenn and William Palmatier. So in the last week, Whitney, I know you've done a little research, a little digging around. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you have found out about these two brothers. Yeah, so let's start with Glenn Palmatier, who is the owner of Glenn's Tavern, where the phone call originates. So he's born in 1911. Uh, he is a native of Illinois and grew up in LaSalle County. So he's he's a local guy. He shows up uh, actually in public records in the late 1950s because he gets nominated for police chief of Aurora. Wow. Uh, then wow. he's appointed city liquor commissioner. Uh, and he apparently gets very active in banning bingo and gaming in the Aurora area. Then he has a falling out with Mayor Egan, who had appointed him a liquor commissioner. He's fired from that position. And then by 1960, he's implicated in these crimes, doesn't seem to suffer any ill effects from his association with the crime, as temporary as it was, gets cleared by September of 1960. And then less than a year later, in February of 1961, he runs for mayor of Aurora. What? Okay. 
He does not win, but he is he is a contender to be mayor of Aurora, which is a large city. This is not small-time yeah, politics. Absolutely. And then, unfortunately, the trail for him kind of goes cold because he dies uh, relatively young at the age of 56 in 1968. So that's what we know about Glenn. Now let's talk about William. So we know the call is placed from Glenn's Tavern, okay, in Aurora, to the home in Peru, LaSalle County, of William Bill Palmatier. So this is actually his older brother. And it's interesting that the uh, Zelensic memo refers to the one calling from Aurora as basically reporting to the boss. You know, can I pause you there? When you say the, Zel- the Zelensic memo, it reminds me like the Zapruder tape. I know, you know right? Just, I, think, <laughs> like, I think from now on, we're going to be talking about the Zelensic memo the, down the road. The Zelensic it's memo. It's going to be infamous. I, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I love, yeah, I love that. Um, I actually thought that when I said it out loud, I went, wow, it's really, it just sounds very, uh, it sounds so appropriate. So William Charles Palmatier, who's known by the name Bill, uh, Bill Palmatier is the recipient of that phone call. It's placed to his house, okay? He, like his brother, is is uh, a son of Illinois, grows up in LaSalle County, and then he has a pretty active career in politics as well. By 1946, uh, he's 41 at this time, He's running for sheriff of Streeter, Illinois, uh, which is a nearby town. Then by 1956, he buys a Pontiac and a Buick dealership in Rock Island, which is another city um, in the area. Then by 1960, he is a really well-established car dealership, Titan. He's got uh, a dealership in Rock Island. He's got a dealership in LaSalle. Um, He's very well-known in the used car world. And then in 1960, he's implicated in this crime. Well, Implicated is maybe not the right term, right? He is briefly questioned in this crime. And no then, big deal, Whitney. They just traced a phone call to his house where his brother's asking him about these bloody overalls and how to get rid of them. Big, no big deal. deal. Move on. <laughs> no. There's nothing to see here. Well, he moved on because by April of 1961, less than a year after this uh, series of events, Bill Palmatier, this titan of the auto industry in the area, then runs for mayor of Peru in LaSalle County, and he wins. Unbelievable. And he he too, like his brother, decides to take on gambling and the rackets. So there's newspaper articles talking about how he's going to purge the rackets from Peru. And then, unfortunately, his trail kind of runs cold as well because he died relatively young in 1967. So the brothers died within a year of each other within the decade. These aren't some low-level no. like hoodlums. These are some connected bigwigs. You got the police chief of Aurora. Was he was Glenn the police chief of Aurora at one point, you said? He was the police chief of Aurora. He did not win for mayor, though. He did run for mayor of Aurora. Yeah, police chief. Then you got the mayor of Peru. I mean, you've got—this actually now is starting to make sense to me, like— how does this go away unless these guys were these connected bigwigs? If they weren't, you'd be hearing about this full court press investigation. But because they were, this whole thing gets covered up. I mean, oh my God. I mean, I think, I mean, we just found this out last week. So let me kind of summarize where we're at. We know there are at least three people involved. The killer with the bloody overalls, Glenn Palmatier, in William Palmatier. We know this is totally inconsistent with the Chester Weger confession story and is further proof, the strongest proof so far, that the Chester Weger confession story is false. We're going to continue to investigate this new development. I mean, we just got this information a week ago. We are not letting this go. I mean, I'm like a dog with a bone in my mouth. (laughs) And here, you know, we say this every week, but this week it takes on special urgency. 
if there is anyone out there that knows anything about Glenn Palmatier or William Palmatier, please reach out to us. We're happy to keep it confidential, but we need your help. We need your help. Whitney, I could talk about this smoking gun, Lois Zelensek memo, the Zelensek memo, as you say, Mm -hmm. for another several hours, and the Palmatier brothers. And I can't overstate how significant a development this is. We took a giant step forward on this episode in our journey to get to the truth. There's going to be more to come. We're going to be continuing to investigate this. We're not done talking about it. And we're going to have a lot more to say about this and other topics. And I'm looking forward to coming back next week and continuing the conversation. Me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I really enjoyed talking about this new development with Lois Zelensek and the Palmatier brothers. We're going to have a lot more to say about all of that. We're going to be back next week with a brand new episode you won't want to miss. And if you want even more information, please visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com. We're posting documents like the Zelensek memo, all these newspaper articles, more information. You can read it yourself, and I urge you to do so. If you know anything about the Star Rock murders, or the Palmatier Brothers, please email us, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. We're happy to keep any information confidential. Also, if you know anybody that you think was wrongfully convicted, we'd love to hear about that as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, which I hope you did, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis, sound designed by Studio D, Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy, and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.